Give it up for Gavin. Praise the Lord. Oh, hey. There's power in the mic, too. Wow. (laughs) Amazing that we can sing the songs, He's a miracle-working God, and then see miracles take place. Amen? Come on, amen? See, it's, it's, also, it's oftentimes we're like, oh, I'm just going to throw this out here. This is a real thing that I've dealt with in my life, and so I'm certain other people have dealt with it too. And we can proclaim and praise and say he's a miracle-working God. And then when a miracle happens, we can doubt instantly, right? Anybody else? Anybody else on that same boat as me, or am I like canoeing by myself? Something happens, and it's like, was that, was that really God, or was that just me? Well, you know what? I'd rather live in faith, not in fear, right? I'd rather live in faith that he is the miracle-working God, that his, his word proclaims rather than live in doubt and fear. And the Spirit will discern in your heart. He will, if in faith we listen. Praise the Lord. You know what's crazy? I said to Kim, I saw a high-five during a worship set. <laughs> Like, who gives high fives during worship set? And I'm like, it better not have been the guy who broke his arm because that was a hard high five. And if you re-break your arm by a high five after God just heals it, I think he'd be angry at you. (laughs) Come on. Hey, what word are we going to use this year? My God. My God. Wow. I love it. Okay, on a good point on a sermon, and you like it, and you agree with it, what are you going to use this year? Throw some ideas out. A plus. That's been going around. I like the A plus. It's cool. Power. My God. I like that. (laughs) Tambi, where are you at? You had one last year that I laughed. I don't think it'll like, I don't think it'll trend. Sorry, pal. But uh, I see where you're going. I thought it was super funny when Josh just yells out, I see where you're going with that one. I don't think it'll trend, buddy, but it was good. (laughs) A plus, that one wasn't. Sorry, Josh. I like to have fun, and sometimes I like to razz, and it's all good because I usually only razz people that I know can take it and know that I love them, and then they usually reciprocate it back to me. And I'm glad James Duncan left early because he usually gives it to me pretty good. You're still here. Oh, I had hoped you left already. (laughs) Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is. Come on. What a great scripture. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I didn't hear that. I'd rather freedom. (laughs) Hey, also in 2 Corinthians, it says this, and it is God who establishes us in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's guarantee. There's a seal. There's anointing that takes place in a believer who confesses Christ as Savior. Amen? What a great week. What a great night we had last Wednesday. What a great message from Kim about the anointing of God. 
She brought us along this journey. It was wonderful. Talking about the description of anointing in the Old Testament. Gave some of these examples in the Old Testament. And who are the people? What positions received anointing in the Old Testament? Any guesses? My man right there. Give it up for Jacob. Give it up for Jacob. A plus. A plus for Jacob. Where did these clappers come from? I love them though. (laughs) Okay, so... Being anointed is what? Anybody remember? What does it mean to be anointed? It's for what? There's a C word. There we go. Consecrate. An inauguration. The beginning of a position. Right? Another thing that anointing does is it what? It gives authority. Come on. Say it with confidence. Authority. It gives that authority, that a power. And the symbolism of oil being poured out is the symbolism of the spirit being poured out on that individual. So in our case, in the Old Testament, Jacob with the priests, the kings, and the prophets, there's examples that Kim gave, right? There's examples of Aaron and his sons who were consecrated. Uh, in Exodus 29, This is what you are to do to consecrate. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. There were kings were set apart by this ritual of anointing. It was to the equivalent of a crown being placed on that king, right? Samuel anointed King Saul. Samuel anointed King David. I love it. In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. Ah, what power in those words. Rise and anoint this man that I have set apart. I have set apart specifically for this role. And then prophets. Okay, there's a couple, uh, two instances here uh, in First Kings. There is the prophet Elisha. And then also in Isaiah 61, Isaiah himself said that he is this anointed prophet. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me. Who's the ultimate king? Who's the ultimate prophet? Who's the ultimate priest? And this journey that Kim brought us to, to this, these examples of the Old Testament, to this culmination of the ultimate king, the highest priest, the ultimate prophet, the anointed prophet in Jesus as being the anointed, the one that the Old Testament screams about on every page. The one the Old Testament is taken every step, every moment, every story, every prophetic word in this journey that God has bringing his nation towards this moment of Jesus on this earth as our Savior, as the anointed one. So we're going to read out of Luke 4 again. But your little like, uh, like, what is this called? Anyone know what that's called? Marker? I think there's another name for it than a bookmark. Bible ribbon, I like that better. Put it on like Luke 4 and keep it there for the month of September. Find another bookmark for your devotions. And uh, it says in Luke 4, verse 14, read along with me. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom 
for, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Whoa. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for you coming to this earth. As the anointed prophet, as the anointed king, as our high priest, as the answer to sin, victory over death, that there is now this jubilee, this this year of your favor, this life of your favor, because of the work that you've done on the cross and because of the empty grave in which you rose from. We love you. Lord, would you speak to us tonight in your name? Amen. Amen. Do you know a good storyteller? Anybody in your family, anybody in your life that is a good storyteller? Yeah? That just like can come up with the most random things ever? You know um, who I think is a pretty decent storyteller here? Free. Ask her about her dreams. <laughs> They're the craziest dreams ever. And she does a great job telling the stories of her dreams. You know who another great storyteller is? Uh, Luke is a great storyteller. Like we're talking one of the best storytellers ever in the game of stories, okay? He's a dynamic storyteller. And I don't mean story by this fictitious thing, okay? Let's get past that. But in the way that he organized his scriptures, in the way that he brought about the moments of Christ's life, in conveying this, this evangelistic effort to the Gentiles, this gospel message to his hearers, he's an incredible storyteller. And we're going to look at this big picture of Luke's storytelling. And so, for those of you who are in hermeneutics on Monday morning, who loved hermeneutics class, come on. Don't let that fade. Keep it going all semester long. We're going to go through some of it tonight as well. And from our very own Roger Stronstad, okay, from our very own Roger Stronstad, a wonderful theologian, a wonderful man, he... uh has since retired. You'll see him every so often wandering the hallways in the academic building. And he'll find himself to the cafe and get a free coffee. Uh, if you find a chance to say hi to Roger, say hi to Roger. He's a great man. He says, from a literary perspective, Luke Acts is arguably the most complex and carefully crafted narrative in the New Testament. The most complex but carefully crafted narrative in the New Testament. Luke's gospel is not just a recount of history. Amen? It's not just a recount of things that took place. There's way more depth and way more to it than just a recount. It is a crafted, poetic revelation of God incarnate. I hope tonight, in our time together, that you understand a new depth in which the way that Luke wrote his scripture and a new desire in your heart to dive into God's word through the way and understanding in how Luke presented his gospel to the Gentiles. 
presented the gospel to his hearers. And so this, this poetic story that Luke has made in Luke and Acts in his two-part series. Okay, just even in the first four chapters. And if you feel like flipping back and forth, go for it. I got scripture here to help you along. And Luke is confirming in the first four chapters of his book the identity that Jesus is the Son of God. Multiple instances. Okay, in the angel's announcement to Mary, the wording is, the an angel says to Mary that the son of the most high, he's using this royal language, the son of the most high, the son of God. In 2 verse 49, Luke's stating a quote by Jesus while at the temple as a child, my father's house. And here's the unique thing about this instance. Luke would not have been there, right? And so he's basing what this moment is on eyewitness accounts of a story of a historical moment that took place and that research that he has done, the people who noticed saw, saw the wisdom as Luke 2 talks about that he had gained and his understanding had gained, had amazed people on his understanding of their eyewitness accounts. He carefully crafts and quotes Jesus, right? And so he's using those words specifically, my father's house. He's not making up words, but he's specifically and intentionally using this language to confirm the identity of Jesus as the son of God. Reports of Jesus' genealogy. Uh, Luke uses the language, being the son, in brackets, as was supposed, of Joseph. Making sure that people were not confused that it was only just the son of Joseph. That it was much more deeper than that. And at the bottom of the genealogy, he says in verse 38, chapter 338, the son of Adam, the son of God. Confirming the identity of Jesus as the son of God. In the baptism, right? And this is that anointing picture. The oil being poured out on prophets. The oil being poured out on kings and on priests. Is this representation of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the individual. In this moment of baptism, the Holy Spirit is being poured out in the picture of a dove. And a picture of a dove coming down. Landing on Jesus. And then the voice of his heavenly father saying, This is my son whom I am well pleased. This is my son. There's a temptation of Jesus. Satan calls Jesus the son of God. And this language that, that Luke uses is very strategic. This language that he uses is very important in conveying his message that in this inauguration, in this anointing, in this beginning of his time, the beginning of his ministry, that he is confirming his identity as the Son of God, transferring this power of the Spirit, which is already on Jesus, but using this language to reveal Jesus as the high priest, as the anointed prophet. Do you you see what Luke is doing here? Do you see that this is not just a recount of of historical moments? It's so much deeper than that. It's this the strategy of setting up these moments in a way to convey a message, like a director does in a documentary, right? There are times where there's edits in the documentary where there's a moment that was at a different time and brought over here and used at this time to convey that message is the same kind of style of writing that Luke is using here to convey his message. He's looking at the big picture of what he's trying to get across to his readers. Not 
all scripture is meant to be read like a proverb. Okay? One line or one verse at a time. That's how we get through it. But not all is meant to be read like a proverb. And if we look at the overall literary structure of Luke's account of the life of Jesus and the account of the Acts of the Apostles, we get to see this bigger picture of what he's trying to convey. And so I want to play this little game about bigger pictures, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a picture up on the screen, and then I'm going to let you guess what it is, and then we're going to reveal the bigger picture to it, okay? So first one, Missy, you want to throw up there? Anointed. You got it. James, is that you? An apple core? I heard a pear, an apple. All right, let's see. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, the next one. I got a jalapeno, I got a red pepper. What? A ratchet? Ketchup? Fire hydrant. Let's see what it is. Coca-Cola. Did anybody get that one? Yes. Come on. All right, next one. Oh. Oh. Hmm. What? What'd you say? Spaceman, a, a headlight, a chalkboard, and it is a, a key. I heard a key over there. Graham, was that you? Come on, right on, a key. All right, next one. A lighter, a what? A watch? Oh, I can see that, yeah. A, a small stair climber? A baby treadmill? <laughs> okay, and it is a lighter. Jeff, got it. Anybody else? Caleb? Oh, nice. Okay, next one. All right, that one was pretty easy. Although, I failed on this one. I thought it was an orange. It's a pencil! <laughs> I think I got like one out of nine on this, so I was terrible. Okay, next one. Ooh, a car. A razor. What? Razor blade. It is... A razor blade. Zach, what did you say? Your last minute effort? <laughs> okay. Is that it? Oh, no, we got more. Ooh. What's this? What's this? 
Rapping? Pizza? Did... Tinsel? Who uses tinsel? Jello. And it is a dish scrubber. <laughs> Did anybody get that one? Yeah? Okay, next one. Did somebody say a spider? Huh? Starbucks? Shrek? <laughs> oh, Cademan! Top of a tomato! Nicely done. Okay, next one. You're right. It's a toothbrush. I think that's it, right? Yeah? All right. Great. Awesome. Anointed. <laughs> we need to remember, okay, that Luke's writing, okay, Luke's writing is not in the style of like a Western side of the world history, okay? It's not written like the side of this world writes our history books. It's a Near Eastern history. It is selective in its moments, but it is not inaccurate, okay? It's selective in its moments, but it is not inaccurate. The Gospels are not just biographies, okay? The Gospel track is written uh, to different groups of people for the purpose of evangelism and discipleship. There's intent to what they want their message to convey, not just information said, okay? The gospel writers selected, they adapted, they arranged material for theological and literary purposes. It does not mean that they, they uh, tampered with it or that they imply that it's false or anything like that. That's not what they're doing. They're not making up events. They're not making up words. The difference uh, in the gospel is not to deny the inspiration of it. Okay? We do not want to deny the inspiration of it. They affirm the eyewitness accounts and the unique evangelistic purpose of each gospel. So that's why there's uniquenesses uh, according to each of the writers. There's a uniqueness in how the story is conveyed. There's uniquenesses in timelines. There's uniquenesses in the journey motif that you see in difference of each of the gospels. So, for example, we'll take what we're doing here in uh, Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4, okay? There's this baptism of Jesus, and then following the baptism is his what in the desert? His temptation in the desert, and then the next scene is where? In Nazareth, going to the synagogue. Okay, in uh, Luke, or sorry, in John's journey of Jesus is, is a little different, okay? John introduces Jesus, he points disciples to Jesus, water turned to wine in Cana, the temple is cleansed, Jesus and Nicodemus conversation, Jesus and Samaritans conversation, and then Jesus makes his return to Galilee where he is rejected at Nazareth. And so there's this difference in 
the way that they have described their stories to convey what they're trying to get to their audience. They're not lying about what they're doing. They're not tampering with the eyewitness accounts. They're not changing any of it. It's just in the way that they write in their style of literary, the devices and motifs that they use to convey the points in which they're trying to get across. Do you see what Luke is trying to do here? Do you get that a little bit more? And so for uh, the summer, I was a part of this class, uh, this Pentecostal distinctives class. And we had to read the book of Luke and Acts uh, in an entire sitting. We had to do that multiple times over so we could see the different kind of literary motifs that Luke used to convey his message. And it was fascinating. Like, Like, to be honest, as crazy as this is to say it, being a believer for um, 18 years and being in ministry for 12 of those years, I had this rebirth of the fascination of Scripture in my life. Right? Like, like getting to see it in this different light, in this different depth and understanding of what Luke is trying to say to his, his readers. And to see the, the, the styles and this journey motif of Jesus and where he is going. And a huge thing that hit me hard actually was uh, food in the book of Luke. There's a ton of writing surrounding the table and food and communion and breaking bread together. And I did a paper on this uh, and a series in the summer at a camp that I spoke at in Luke's concept of just sitting around the table and the picture of the table is the is a pure picture of the gospel and this all culmination picture of Jesus and his disciples sitting around the communion table and how really to convey his message is how we love one another and we accept one another and that everybody has a seat at the table and it talks about acceptance and it talks about gospel love and it talks about hope and it talks about for those who are marginalized or the outcast that there is a place for them at the table You ever felt marginalized before? You ever felt like you just didn't fit in at times? And to know and to maybe for, well, we'll hear for many of his readers, for the first time being accepted into this room to have a seat at the table and how life transforming and how life changing that is. And so he's not just recounting moments. He is, but he's strategically setting up a story. And he's a poet. He's a historian, but Luke is a poet. So his audience is primarily a a Gentile audience, okay? And he's showcasing Jesus. And he's showcasing to them that Jesus is the Son of God. He's authenticating Jesus as Savior. And he's revealing his life-changing story of love and of hope and of grace. And he's offering it to these people. And not only offering it, but he's working to persuade them to follow Jesus. So it's not just a nice story to read, but that as they read, as they learn, as they hear, that there would be the desire to accept and grab a hold and follow along in this journey that Luke is portraying of Jesus. So his primary purpose is to authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. But not only as the Son of God, as the Anointed One as well, which Kim talked about great last week. And so this, this picture of Jesus and the baptism, 
baptism in water in the Jordan River and this theophany. This is another Stronstad word that I got it. Theophany. Anybody know what theophany means? Come on. Nathaniel. Yeah, like a, like a physical special encounter that you can see. And so this theophany of this dove coming down, uh, resting on Jesus, this audible voice from heaven, uh, recognizing Jesus as the son of the heavenly father, this amazing theophany of God takes place. You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. And so these signs, these two signs of the dove coming down and the audible voice okay, communicates the anointing of Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily communicate the meaning of his position just yet. Okay, We get to read it in a way that we understand what the author understands. We're not reading it in a way that the audience knows at that time. And so Jesus has this baptism take place and he speaks into the synagogue, but yet they don't understand the position that Jesus holds as prophet, priest, and king just yet. So I want to set up this story for you. Okay, so sometime after the Jordan River, right, there's this travel, there's this journey, takes place, and he gets back to his hometown of Nazareth. Okay, and uh, in verse 14, it says, news about him spread through the whole countryside. So people had heard of what was taking place. And in Nazareth, too, you got to think about it, most Likely, everybody knew Jesus as a child, right? Most likely. All those that were there knew who Jesus was. And so here's this guy that they knew as a child, raised up. And now there's these words about these healings that are taking place. Or this miracle of water into wine. Or that he's he's teaching and he's talking. And, and he's gaining this following. And he's calling disciples out. They knew he had wisdom. They knew he had understanding. Luke says that in chapter 2. But there's this talk about him is spreading through the countryside. And so he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it says, which was customary. Those little lines mean a lot of things at times. Okay? Ooh, that rhymed. That worked well. Those little lines mean something. This was customary. So Jesus grew up practicing this public worship, okay, in the synagogues. And so this area probably was pretty familiar to Jesus. It was most likely this synagogue in which he spent the Sabbath at each week, read from the scriptures, heard from the law and the prophets. Through my study on this, I can't help but wonder, and this isn't a point by any means, I wonder what it was like as a teenager for Jesus. Because he's sinless, right? So that means he never sinned as a teenager either. And when we have like friends that always do good, we make fun of them, right? We call them goody-goodies. And we think, oh man, you're just so perfect. You're so good all the time. I wonder if Jesus, this teenager who never sinned, uh, was probably, I'm guessing, I don't know what they would say in goody-goody in Aramaic, but (laughs) we should learn that together. (laughs) So here's this moment, according to Luke, the first public moment of ministry as the Messiah in Nazareth. That's a lot to take in. The first public moment of ministry as Messiah in Nazareth. And he writes specifically, Luke writes specifically as Jesus, he gets into the temple. And he reads Isaiah. He reads Isaiah. And if you got it in front of you, let's read it together. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's most likely that Jesus read more than just that section. But you got to understand Luke's motif of why he just chose that section, the principle in which that he's trying to convey, the message in which he's trying to convey to his audience that this moment, this here is what Jesus spoke. He spoke it. He may have spoke the whole chapter, but in what Luke is trying to convey here to his audience is that, is that in this moment, Jesus says, I am the anointed one. I have come to proclaim the good news. I have come to set captives free, to liberate the oppressed, to heal the blind. I have come. And in this moment now, this prophecy is fulfilled. That would be mind-blowing if you didn't already know the end. Think about it. You know what the author knows. You're reading it in the way that the author already understands. You know the ending. But think about it in the way for years and years and years you've heard these prophecies. You've heard these laws spoken over that a time will come. And in this moment, this guy, this one, says that it's him. This one says that he is the fulfilling of the prophecy. He is the one that's going to liberate the captives. He is that one that's going to bring the year of the Lord. Whoa. Whoa. No wonder they rejected him. No wonder they doubted We face fear and we know the answer. The fear, the insecurities, and the doubt that they must have faced in that moment as Jesus proclaims that he is the anointed prophet and they reject. So he even had to self-identify him as the prophet as they were unsure of when that moment would come or what it would look like. Actually, it looked very different from what they thought it would look like. So he reads this portion out of Isaiah 61. <clears throat> and he had been commissioned, right? Anointed, commissioned as prophet through the baptism. Identifies himself as prophet here in this moment. But he's got to confirm, he's got to make them know uh, that he is the anointed prophet. And to do so, he's got to prove that he is the prophet by doing the work of the prophet. And so he says, the work of the prophet, to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the next few chapters of Luke, Luke 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 are moments in Jesus' journey where he is liberating people. He is healing people. He's teaching them. He's calling people to repentance. And the five things here that he lists that he's going to do, there's physical moments and journeys and times in history in which Luke strategically organizes to prove his point here in this moment in the synagogue. It's beautiful, the layers and layers in how Luke writes his story. And he also writes in the form of questions. Like he, he asks questions in his story that he knows readers are going to ask as they're looking through it or as they're hearing about it. First, it's with the what questions. What is his message? What authority does he have? What power does he have to command the unclean spirits? 
He also asks the why questions. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then ultimately the who questions. Who speaks these blasphemies? Who is this man who can forgive sins? And he gets to the who question. Who is Jesus? The anointed one. The son of God. And so I want to quickly go through these Five things that the prophet is to do and does. First is to preach good news to the poor. And while Jesus did care about the poor and he himself grew up in the monetary style and value of the poor, that's not exactly what he means when he says to preach good news to the poor. It's not the financially poor. It's not the material poor. They are included in it, but not limited to that. It's more than that. The word poor here implies a hopelessness in spirit. Have you ever been hopeless before? Have you ever been in a moment in your life where you're just like crushed and feel in utter hopelessness? Like literally meaning having nothing to offer. It also means the marginalized, the outcasts of society. So it could be people who are rich like tax collectors, but they're outcasts. They're marginalized, they're looked down upon. Children, women, some men, the lame, the sick, the marginalized, the low social class. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor who have never felt they've had a seat at the table. And now there's room at the table. People like me. People like you who are in need of hope. To proclaim freedom, liberty for those who are imprisoned. Captive of their own desires and their own will. Not necessarily the physical imprisonment, but the spiritual. Addictions. Fear of the future. Fear of failure. Maybe you're entrapped and enslaved with bitterness or anger. Insecurities. Jesus came to liberate people from bondage. Amen? Jesus came to bring you and I out of captivity. Amen? And deliverance and recovery begins with this decision to let Jesus lead you along that journey. He brings freedom, liberty for those who are imprisoned. Another one is recover sight to the blind. Love this one. Recover sight to the blind. Jesus was not quoted by Luke saying this specific prophecy out of Isaiah, but another one that Isaiah says that only the Messiah is going to fulfill is that of a healer, that the Messiah is to come as the anointed healer. In the Old Testament, there were four miracles, okay? Four miracles that were not recorded. I loved this. When I learned this, I was so stoked. Four miracles that were not recorded. Healing of the blind. This is in the Old Testament. Healing of the blind, healing of the lame, healing of the mute, and healing of the deaf. And he says in Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. And these healings took place in the following chapters of Luke to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that Isaiah talked about, the ones that the prophets talked about, the law and the prophets screaming the name of Jesus. He's showcasing that it is him. He is here. The anointed one has come to bring healing and recover sight to the blind. 
a healing that only Christ would begin with and start. It's amazing. He fulfills these ancient prophecies. The lame walk. The, the, those who are born blind receive sight. The mute are given voices. And the deaf hear. Do you see the layers? Do you see the layers? Release the oppressed. Okay, King James Version says it this way. To set at liberty those who are bruised. You ever been hurt spiritually before? Maybe you've been let down. You feel bruised, insecure. You thought it was going to go one way and it never did. You question, you fear, you doubt, and you feel bruised. Do you know people who are spiritually bruised? Who still to this day feel oppressed and that there's no release? I've heard this guy named Jesus and I heard he gives victory, but yet I still feel like I'm oppressed. You ever been in that moment before? Where it's like, why can't this just be shaken off? Why can't it go away? I want a release of it. Jesus brings this release. And he came to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Kim talked about this a bit last week as well, right? Understand the year of the Lord. Does that make sense to you guys? The year of Jubilee. Every seven years, there would be a like Sabbath for the land, a sabbatical for the land every seven years. So there would be a year of rest for the land, okay? And then what took place is after the seventh of the seventh sabbatical, so 49 onto 50 years, there would be this year of jubilee. That any debt, right? Anything that required of lands, of workers, of slaves, of debt that you owed anybody else was eliminated completely. So if I had land that I was borrowing and uh, was paying you, at that moment, I would give all that land back to its original owner and all debt was canceled. All people who were under slavery and working for others were set free. It was amazing in what uh, is described in Leviticus. Now, there's no actual biblical proof that the Israelites stayed true to that message. But there was hope in that that was going to come. And it was in this Moment that Jesus says, now is the time, not just for the soil, not just for the ground, but for your life. You are now in the year of the Lord's favor, in the year of Jubilee. Today, we live in the year of Jubilee. Our debts are paid. They're canceled, forgiven, no longer existing because of what Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. But the anointing does not end there. It doesn't end there. In the way that Luke writes his gospel, Luke. In the literary structure and format and style in which he writes that account. He does the same in the book of Acts. The way that he brings about his scriptures in chapter 1. And the way that he inaugurates Jesus as the son of God. As the anointed prophet. And the baptism and the anointing of the spirit. He does the exact same so for his bride. For his church in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. That he, there is this outpouring of the spirit to take place on his bride. On the church. On the day of Pentecost. 
And he does this parallel writing of Luke and Acts in his style. It's amazing to read it all together. Chapter 4, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 14. Okay, and he's preaching to the old, te- or preaching to the synagogues with the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. Skip to Acts. Peter is preaching to the crowd at Pentecost, referencing the Old Testament prophet Joel. And in Acts 2, there's this outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 8. There's this picture of inauguration, this consecration of the church to begin in that moment of Pentecost. To prove to his readers that the time has come, that the time is now. We've heard for years and years and years, and it's here. It's finally here. This beautiful picture of the Spirit being poured out on believers. That in the New Testament, all who follow Jesus are said to be anointed, set apart, God's very own, and commissioned for service. We are a royal priesthood, amen? Come on, a royal priesthood. Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may desire the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. This is a beautiful picture of transferring of leadership. Just like Samuel did from Saul to David, this anointing and this pouring out and this transfer of leadership. From Jesus as the anointed, now to the anointer. Isn't it such a beautiful picture? Isn't it such a great blessing that we now are the anointed, the royal priesthood? But there's another side. Not only are we anointed, we receive the blessing, but we also receive the commission too. So whose responsibility today is to preach the good news? Come on. Whose responsibility today to liberate the captives? To see the oppressed set free? To see the lame walk and the blind see? To proclaim that today is the year of Jubilee? Whose responsibility is that? Come on, whose responsibility is that? I'm certain you're probably going to be rejected at times. If Jesus himself was rejected, I'm certain you're going to be looked at and go, I don't know about that. We talk often about the call of God on our life, right? The call of God, the call to come to Bible college, the call of ministry. This is not the kind of calling I'm talking about. I'm talking about the calling of your salvation, that all Christians, doesn't matter if you're in the pastoral theology or if you're in Omega or if you're in counseling or not-for-profit or whatever, or you go to Bible college or you don't, we are all called to preach the good news. We are all called and commissioned to liberate the captives, to set free those who are oppressed, and to release those who are still held in bondage. It is our responsibility. It's a blessing to be anointed, but it's also a responsibility to follow through on the mission of Jesus. We're called sons and daughters, amen? We're called heirs to the throne, amen? We're called holy and anointed, amen? We're called to preach the gospel. Amen? Do you remember your story when you first met Jesus? 
Some of you, it may be a moment. Some of you, it may be a few moments, a myriad of moments, a remembering, a recollection, a time frame. Um, I remember when I first met Jesus. I, I will never forget that moment. Um, it was it was wonderful. It was ugly. It was beautiful. It was unbelievable. It was frightening. Um, and I remember that moment very clearly. But I also remember the moment in my life where I understood that moment. Right? Like often in our lives, we've said yes to Jesus, but I don't really understand what I just said yes to. Ever been there? <laughs> I was there. I said yes, and I knew there was something. There had to be something. I was convinced of it, but I never fully quite understood it. And I'm going to get the band. You guys can come on back up. And I actually just had this conversation with Nathan. Where are you at? Yeah, today in my office. And I remember this moment as a teenager. It was about a year and a half following my salvation. I was 18 years old. And I remember sitting uh, in my bathroom, and I sat on the edge of the tub and I was like, okay, is this thing still real? Like the hype of what was going on had faded. The emotion of what was taking place had faded. The reality was setting in on the day-to-day grind of what it meant to be a Christian. And I remember sitting in my bathroom and uh, thinking, is this it? Like, is is this the end of what I want to do? But I was not convinced that I could just stop. And it was in that moment, by myself, praying to Jesus, asking for some kind of fresh revelation of him, or some emotion, or some feeling. But he gave me something so much deeper. It wasn't even a call to ministry at this time. He gave me so much deeper that my life is not just for my life. And last year we talked all, a lot about identity and about who I am and we came up with this slogan that it's not who I am, it's whose I am. And it was great, but it was in this moment making me think for this sermon tonight that it's not even just who I am, but who I am for. And I realized that my life was no longer just for me, but it was for those who are still living in oppression when the answer is right there who are still living broken lives when the answer is right there before them, available for them to take hold. It's for those who have said yes to the victory of Jesus, but yet still walk with a limp or a hunch because of fear in their lives, and they're not truly convinced that they have felt that true release, that they have felt that true liberation. That my life is no longer just for me about who I am, but it's who I am for. And I want to take tonight for you to remember if there was a moment in your life where you have experienced that. And if not, I'd love, I'd love nothing more to pray for you to have a moment like that tonight. That we can receive this anointing as heirs to the throne that comes with a responsibility and a weight that my life is no longer just for myself but it's for everybody out there who is still broken and lost in this world and so why don't you stand with me 
And if you need the anointing again tonight, and I don't mean the anointing of oil laid on your forehead, although we can do that if you're feeling convicted to do so, but the anointing of the commission and the call of God to be set apart and to live your life for the glory of God and for the service of those who are lost. Jesus, I thank you that you have called every single person in this room to your throne, to your name, to salvation unto the King Jesus. You call us, you call all of us. And now as your church and as your bride, we receive an anointing, but we also know that there is a calling and there is a commission that is tagged along with it. And Lord, we repent. God, I repent of the times where I have neglected that commission, at times where I have put that aside for my own desires, my own ego, my own way, where I have been distracted with my own wants. And I repent in this moment. And on behalf of us here, God, we come before you asking again for you to move in this moment, to shake us at the core again, to remind us of your call, to remind us of your moving through your word, your promises, your truth. God, I pray for a deepening and desire of spending time in your word. I pray that this message tonight conveyed by you would cause us to find ourselves on our knees with your word opened up in front of us, diving in and eating and eating and hungering for more of what you have for us. That it would cause us to stand up and go and to proclaim your good news and liberate those who are captive. And so in this moment, we surrender ourselves again. We surrender this evening and these next few moments and minutes to you to say, have your way here as you send us out these doors in a while. We posture ourselves before you, Jesus. So I'm just going to give you the chance. If you would like to come up to the front and pray and confess and say yes to Jesus, by all means. And we can come around and lay our hands over you. It is your time, your moment to do it now. Go for it.